Father, may your word truly be bread and life to us. Through the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen. Some people eat to live. Other people live to eat. I thought about taking a poll to see which you thought you might be, but I decided that might get all of us in trouble, so I decided not to do that. But we all know, whatever our perspective, food is is essential to our lives. We have to eat. And I suspect that maybe that's one reason Jesus uses food so often in his ministry. It's common. It's every day. And it's something we understand. And it's a powerful tool for understanding the kingdom of God. One of those moments is recorded for us here in Matthew 14 in this passage that we've just read. John the Baptist, who is probably Jesus' cousin, certainly very a very special person in, in God's messianic plan as the forerunner of Jesus, John has just been beheaded, executed by Herod. When Jesus hears this news, his first reaction is to remove himself from other people. What's some time alone? And we understand that. If you're like me, sometimes when you read, you think about Jesus, you read the Gospels, you ponder who Jesus is, it's so easy to, to forget that he is fully human as he is fully divine. And so Jesus needs some time to grieve as, as we would. And, and Jesus needs some time to pray in this difficult moment as we do. Perhaps John's death reminds Jesus of what lies ahead for him. And he wants to once again pray for strength and power and grace to see this through all the way to the end. And so Jesus is headed, has headed off by himself, but the people hear that Jesus is near, and people couldn't stay away from Jesus. And they go to him and And I guess I would suspect he's probably tempted to dismiss them. But he has such a compassionate heart. And he sees their great need. He says, okay. And and he spends time with them. So I think it's another one of those moments when we are reminded of how much God loves interludes. Sometimes what we might call tangents. Some biblical scholars tell us that when you come across a passage that seems out of place, that it seems like it's just sort of been stuck in there and it doesn't fit the flow, that some biblical scholars will say, well, it's either a mistake or it's a later insertion by an editor to make a point. Because no good writer would would end up with a product like that. He wouldn't organize the material that way. But I'm coming to see that that kind of organization of Scripture particularly the organization that seems at first glance out of place, is simply God's way of highlighting something that we might otherwise miss. I always wonder why the writer of Genesis begins the Joseph narrative in chapter 37, and then in chapter 38 moves completely away from Joseph to talk about Judah's indiscretion with Tamar, and then in chapter 39 goes back to Joseph again. 
I mean, why not put that in chapter 37 and begin Joseph at 38 and just run the whole thing through? There's something there that God wants us to see that we would miss if it weren't arranged that way, if there wasn't this interlude, this tangent. Sometimes those interludes are intended to teach us a lesson about trust, like the story of Jairus, the synagogue ruler, whose daughter is deathly ill. And he comes to Jesus and convinces Jesus to to go to his house with him and and to heal his daughter. And, And on the way, a woman who's been ill for 20 years makes her way through the crowd and touches Jesus' cloak. And she's healed, which is great, but Jesus stops the procession. You can imagine how impatient Jairus is at at this interruption, at this interlude into what he knows is a life or death situation for his daughter. And Jesus talks to this woman. He wants her to understand what has happened. He wants to have a relationship with her. And all the while, Jairus is, it were me, tapping his foot, trying to get Jesus to go. I think Jesus stops the procession as much for Jairus as he does for this woman who's been healed. Jairus needs to learn a deeper lesson of trust that despite his daughter dying before they arrive, Jesus is still in control and that he will do more than any of them could ever imagine, including bringing his daughter back to life. And I suspect that this story in Matthew 14 includes within it an element of interlude, of, of interruption, a waiting moment. Jesus wants to get away in order to grieve, to work through the death of his dear friend and relative, and he's interrupted, but the interruption turns into an opportunity for the miraculous. And if we'll look at our interruptions that way, we will see God at work too. So Jesus spends the day healing and teaching, and all of a sudden the disciples realize it's getting later than they realized. And the people are hungry, and they're out in a remote place, and there's nowhere to get food. And they go to Jesus and say, look, you need to send the people away so they can get food. I don't think the disciples are uncaring about the people. I mean, they want the people to eat. I don't think they're cold and unfeeling about the hunger that these people must feel. I just think they don't know what to do. How in the world could we do anything about thousands and thousands of people needing to eat? And we look at this world of such great need, and we think to ourselves, what could I possibly do about it? What could we possibly do about it? We don't have enough in this church to address the needs of of the world, the county, Our resources are more limited than people realize. We don't have enough. And I know sometimes people look at at our church, the size of the buildings, and and maybe in comparison to other buildings. They count the number of people in comparison to others. They count the, maybe figure up the, the suspected income that we might have at our potential compared to others, and think, wow, they should be able to tackle any problem that arises. And And certainly we do possess more resources than than other churches. But we know, we know all too well our limited resources. Limited financial resources and emotional resources and time resources, spiritual resources. 
We're just as overwhelmed by the needs as anyone else is. And so we pray for God to give the hungry nourishment. We ask God to help those who are breaking under the heavy weight of physical burdens, to transform those who are breaking under the heavy weight of spiritual death. And we mean well, and we wish them well. We wish we had more to give. We wish that as a church, as a community of believers, we could make a stronger impression. We could make a bigger dent in the need. We say, what what can we really do? So we pray, Lord, you'd better do something about those needs. Because after all, there's barely enough to nourish our souls. And Jesus listens to us. And then says, no, you give them something to eat. Well, I think we're right back where we started. I don't think Jesus wants the disciples to do what he does. He's not waiting for the disciples to multiply the loaves and the fish. He's not asking the disciples to be the Messiah. He's not asking them to perform a miracle. I think Jesus wants his disciples to do exactly what he eventually leads them to do. He wants the disciples to say not, send them away. But Jesus, how would you like for us to distribute the food that you're going to miraculously provide? He's looking for faith. Have enough faith to start getting the people ready to eat. Jesus wants them to believe That with Christ, the supply never outweighs the demand. I've often wondered how Jesus exactly, physically performs this miracle. Have you ever wondered that? You know, I've thought to myself, does he put his hands behind his back and start breaking the bread and it starts falling out? You know, like the magician with the handkerchief that keeps coming out of his sleeve. You know, Does he break the bread and and it just keeps breaking and breaking and breaking and breaking? Or or when he puts some in a basket and they start pulling it out of the basket and it's just like a never-ending basket? I don't know. And and I sometimes lament that the gospel writers don't give us those kinds of details. I'd kind of like to know that. And I always assume that we don't get those details because either the disciples don't know how Jesus does this Or the gospel writers feel like they only have limited space and those details aren't all that important. I've kind of come to to believe that the lack of details are intentional. Perhaps the gospel writers leave it out in order to highlight the central point of what's going on here, that the story's not really about multiplying bread and fish. Stories about the disciples needing to learn to trust that the kingdom of God, that in the kingdom of God, a little in Christ's hands is infinitely more than a lot in our hands. That the kingdom of God is always greater than the need. Read this this story, and the language is is Eucharistic. It sounds a lot like the description of of the Last Supper, that Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, 
and gave it to me. And as we come to the table today, God wants us to see this table as more than just a few loaves and a few cups. God wants us to see this table that it's about trusting that the food we eat here is more nourishment for our souls and our lives than all the stuff that we try to manufacture on our own. As important as some of that is. But that the bread of Christ is what meets the demand. The bread of Christ is what gives us the ability to eat and be nourished. But the table of the Lord is not only about us and our nourishment. This table is nourishment for us so that we have strength and power and grace to feed others. Jesus is saying to us the same thing he says to disciples, you give them something to eat. We worry sometimes about whether we, are, whether we approach this table in the correct spirit. And that's not an insignificant concern. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul warns them about the spirit in which we eat and drink. And the spirit that concerns him at the heart of the problem is selfishness. There are those who are, who, who are wealthy and are able to get there to the meal early and they eat up most of the food and don't think a thing about the other people who are coming later. And you can't come to this table appropriately if you come only thinking about yourself. Paul and Jesus are saying the same thing. Maybe if you want a test to determine if you're coming worthily in the spirit that Christ intends, then ask yourself, does eating and drinking make me want to be a catalyst to feed others? Does eating and drinking lead me to expend myself for others? Because this table nourishes us so that we have strength and grace and power and food to feed others. There's something about coming to this table in the spirit of Christ that gives us a new desire to care about others and to want to be a catalyst to feed others. If eating and drinking doesn't give us a greater, more impassioned heart for helping others and feeding others, then perhaps our perspective of the table is more skewed than we realize. Now, feeding others, I think, certainly will involve the physical needs that people have. It may well involve actual food and drink for people who are hungry and thirsty. It will mean supporting people and caring for people. In this time of great economic crisis, it's a time for the church to continually extend the table to those who are in need. And maybe, as someone has said in this time, that commemorating the Lord's Supper is as much about, it may not be just a picture of the upper room, but we also need a picture of Jesus feeding the multitude. But giving people something to eat is never complete unless in the midst of that we are giving them Christ. Most anyone can give food, as important as that is. 
But only Christ's followers can give people Jesus. And this meal reminds us that however God leads us to other people, and whatever he leads us to, to, to bring to people to feed those who are needy, it will involve love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and truth. Even as we give people a loaf of bread, we do it in the spirit and in the grace and in the love of Christ. Because ultimately, as concerned as we are about the physical needs of the world, we are just as concerned about the spiritual needs of the world. Ultimately, our call is to give people Jesus. To give people what we've been given, nothing more, nothing less. And so the forgiveness that Christ has, uh, we've received from Christ, is the forgiveness that we extend to others. And the grace that Christ has given to us is the grace that we extend to others. And the love that Christ has given to us is the love that we extend to others. In whatever form Christ leads us, give it. An interesting parallel in this story. These needy people come to Jesus and and, and there is a sense in which Jesus is, is intimating that he has nothing to give. He's drained. He's burdened. He's trying to get away. He's thinking, I don't have anything to give right now. Yet because of his selfless compassion, He puts his own grief aside for a while. And he comes and he ministers to the needs of the people. Because he knows that in God's power, the supply is still greater than the demand. I wonder how long it takes the disciples to see that Jesus is asking of them the same thing. Saying to them, I I know you have nothing to give. I know your resources are limited, the demand is great, but in the name of God, give them something to eat anyway. Believe that in the power and grace of God, there is something you can give. And so as we come to the table this morning, we come realizing that what we give to others is born out of what God gives to us. That this table is a means of nourishing us, not just so that we can keep taking in, but so that we have resources to give to the people of this world something to eat. So today, as we eat and drink, and as our souls are nourished, hear God's prompting. Give them something to eat. And obey as he directs us. Amen.